Well, those of you who uh, have good memories and remember the preaching on the first part of the first chapter of James, you may have had that negative thought, God, James does go on about afflictions and persecutions, doesn't he? The whole chapter so far has been about this problem that we all have, temptations, tests of our faith, the negatives in our lives. You'd think that we had negatives in our lives, wouldn't you? Do we? Yes, we do. We all have those pains and afflictions. And so I think James knows the human heart and condition very well when he goes on and on and on. And so I have gone on and on and on. And we have another sermon this morning to strengthen us, to give us a better picture of who God is and how big he is. Well, congregation, the early Christian church was a persecuted church, a church of afflictions, oppressions, problems, anxieties. It was rarely at peace with authorities and society. This was God's way of growing his church. First of all, in his faith, there's nothing like an affliction to grow your faith. And those of you who've been through them know that full well. And numbers in the church. Instead of decreasing the church, the church grew. And so the saying arose, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It happened in Russia. It happened in China under communist persecution. And it would still happen here in Australia too if we endured persecution. Jesus, the head of the church, had foretold all this to his disciples. They should have known, and I'm sure they did eventually. Quote, in the upper room prior to his death, Jesus said, I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you? No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And earlier than this, Jesus had taught, <clears throat> I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. An astonishing statement. And he had pronounced persecution and suffering as a blessing in his sermon on the Beatitude. Blessed are you. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so it came to pass. The first Jewish Christians had to flee Jerusalem because they were persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders. But it was not simply God's intention for them to find a new home and new neighbors. It was so that they could testify to the Gentile world. Greeks and Romans, pagans, idolaters. That Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, whose death had earned forgiveness for all those who believe in him. The ascension command 
was to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem. Yes, they could tick that one. But then Jesus went on to say, and in all Judea and in all Samaria, and he dared to say, to the ends of the earth, the church must take this gospel. So now it was time to preach this good news to Judea, Samaria, and eventually the ends of the earth. Christ knew it was going to be tough. He knew the suffering that they would endure in his name. And through his servant James, Jesus brought them comfort, encouragement, strength to endure, to persevere in faith to the glory of Jesus. Now we are not in the same persecuted state as they were, are we? <clears throat> Those 12 scattered tribes. But there are still many times in your life when you need comfort and encouragement with the trials of your faith. The Lord brings us. And it is still God's way to grow our faith in Christ. Tests. And that comfort comes via the whole Word of God, the Bible. So once again, let me say to you, read it. Not just one chapter a day, read a whole book. You read other books, don't you? You watch TV for hours, spend 15 minutes reading a whole book. Study it, memorize it, grow closer to the, to the Lord Jesus. That's the only place you're going to learn about him and God. Yet, there are many of our God's people, our brothers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who are being persecuted this very hour while we sit here on our seats, worshipping the Lord. In North Korea, Muslim countries, and China, and the Good Shepherd asks you to pray for your brothers and sisters daily. Find out their names and support them whenever and however you can. For example, via Barnabas Aid, to which I subscribe, we just read of January, January 4, not so long ago, the IS boasted of killing 10 Christians in Mozambique. Yeah, Mozambique. Christians die there too. In January 16 in Iran, a deaf Christian man was arrested for no reason. His house broken into and arrested. In the Sudan, a church was burned to the ground and its members killed. And you may even remember one news item got to our, news, our TV a few days ago of a Christian being shot in a Turkish church. They don't often get onto our news. If you read the Christian news, it's happening every day. Now, one can suffer only so much as a Christian before one is tempted to question God's ways and to complain. <gasps> complain to God. Why, Lord? And now James, who has the heart and pen of a pastor, addresses such Christians with this complaint. 
How can a good God allow such persecution in my life? Why can't I have all the good things my mates and my neighbors have as well? Why do I have to suffer tests like divorce, marriage breakups, cancers, the loss of a loved one while young, endure getting sacked, and so on? What's yours? What is your source of frustration with God Almighty? But we note, and we should note too, congregation, that James does not judge such Christians. He doesn't point the finger at them for their weakness of faith, for their failures and the tests. He doesn't reprimand them as one who is stronger and more mature in faith than they. He addresses them as my dear brothers, my dear brothers, it means I love you guys, you're my brothers, ones whom he knows and loves as belonging to Christ. Perhaps some had been in his catechism class. Yet in the same breath, he charges them and counsels them that such thoughts and opinions are lies and far from the truth. God is just not like that. And so he says, don't be deceived. They come out very strongly as a powerful command. Don't be deceived. Don't think that way. Don't believe such lies about God. He reveals that his thoughts are not our thoughts. How could they be? He is God, we are people. He is creator, we are creatures. Neither are our ways, your ways. His plans for you and me are much higher, far above this roof, that's for sure. In his word, he has his purpose for us and he will accomplish that purpose in our lives what he desires, not our feeble thoughts of ignorance. Some of them erred in not knowing who God is, how great he is, and how he operates on earth, fulfilling his sovereign good pleasure. James now sets forth God as he has revealed himself and his will to us through his word. Immediately, he presents God as a God of goodness. Goodness. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And good and perfect gifts, congregation, in case you didn't realize, can only come from a good and perfect God. In fact, God is goodness. And if you'd been looking for that word this morning, that word of goodness was in the scripture readings and in our songs of praise too. God is goodness personified. In the Psalm 119 we read, you are good and what you do is good, says it all. Your heavenly Father is the God who only bestows good and perfect gifts upon you. 
Now, when you think of God's good and perfect gifts, what immediately comes to your minds? Is it good health? Good job? Good kids? A good church? Possessions? Wealth? Living in Australia? Or should I say living in Perth? That's good. Good Christian schools? Perhaps a good Bible knowledge? Opportunities to serve God? Intelligence? Friends? I'm not sure that these are what James had in mind, though they all may be well considered good gifts from God. Rather, when we look at the immediate context in which he makes this statement in his first chapter of John, we see that James is talking about having pure joy when facing trials of many kinds taking pride in humble circumstances, persevering under trial and standing the test. These are the good and perfect gifts he has in mind. Did you? The psalmist came to acknowledge what James's scattered Christians had yet to believe and know. It was good for me to be afflicted, same teth section was read today, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. It is good to be afflicted so that we might learn about God and his will, his purposes. That's one of the things that gets you down on your knees and even searching the scriptures more deeply Yes, in the immediate context of these words, these good and perfect gifts are nothing less than the trials of many kinds of which he has spoken, the testing of their faith, their humble circumstances, the persevering under trial, the standing the test, good, perfect gifts from God. The God of goodness has obviously a totally different reality to ours regarding pain and suffering, persecution, trials of faith for all his children. Some have harder paths to follow than others, but paths of pain we all have in some degree. You will be familiar with Romans 8.28, where Paul bluntly agrees with James by saying, we know. Get those words? We know. No doubts. We know that all things, all things work together for the good of those who love God. That's a mystery to the unbeliever. You notice the course, the emphasis on good. Had they not seen his majestic fullness when this God of goodness sent his one and only son into the world to do what? To have a good life? Did Jesus come here to have a good life? 
happy, peaceful holiday here on earth? No. God's goodness is expressed by the church as Good Friday. When he afflicted his son in his holy wrath for the punishment of my sins, does the world call that good? No. The world calls that cruel torture. So also, too often, we misinterpret God's actions in our lives when we see them as instruments of his anger or perhaps instruments of his nonchalance, as if he doesn't care for me or you anymore. He's forgotten you. You're not important in his kingdom. Yes, Calvary did reveal the wrath of God for your sins, but that wrath and punishment fell on Jesus so that his love and his grace would rest upon you eternally. How about that? How about that? And the cross remains the greatest example of God's goodness. It's worth repeating. The suffering of death of Jesus remains the greatest example of God's goodness revealed to humanity. It was his greatest good and perfect gift for a fallen, unworthy, sinful humanity. Now that early church had further seen his goodness in the good and perfect gift of the Holy Spirit when he was poured out on every believer on the day of Pentecost. On that day, the church had rejoiced in God's goodness to them. In Acts 2, we real, we tells us that they praised God for his goodness and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. But they were still learning that all things come to his children from God's hand. And that hand is always one of unconditional, eternal love and goodness. As John says in his letter, Behold, look everybody, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Or as Paul has said, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Yes, his ways and his thoughts and his love include tests and struggles and persecutions and pain. Their purpose is to make us seek him the more earnestly. Nothing like an affliction to get you down on your knees, I said. Think of the psalmist. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? Why does he give us the good gift of suffering, you ask? So that his works can be displayed in us in spite of that suffering. To the man born blind in Jesus' day, 
and being questioned as to why this man had been born blind. The people thought it because somebody had sinned, his father's or maybe his mother or somebody else. Jesus replied, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So the work of God could be displayed, seen by everybody in his life. And will you suffer and endure, endure with joy? People see that. And they see the work of God displayed in your life. Further, then our faith can be strengthened. Notice that Lazarus had to die so that the people might believe. Thirdly, that we may know him better. And that's what we need and we're growing in day by day, knowing God better. When God revealed to Job how great he was, out of the whirlwind, Job replied, ah, my, ears had, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Wow. He saw God, he saw himself. And fourthly, the world can see the gospel of forgiveness and love in real people's lives. Now from God's giving of his gifts, James proceeds further to the very nature of God himself, so that those suffering may know God's greatness. He is the father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. It's a short and sweet expression of God's nature, but typical James. And yet, what an awesome statement. James is saying, look up to the heavens, you suffering saints. What do you see? The sun, the moon, the stars, all shedding their lights on the world and dispelling darkness. Your father is just like that to his people. The ultimate source of light and warmth and sustenance. As John says, God is light and him is no darkness at all. Don't accuse God of being dark. In scripture, light is symbolic of truth and holiness and love and goodness, all of which give a blessed assurance to the Christian that all is well with my soul, even though, as the author of those words said, when my children are drowned when crossing the Atlantic Ocean. The work of God was displayed in his life and continues to be displayed today as we sing that great hymn. James, secondly, <clears throat> focuses attention on the unchangeability of God's very being. He's getting quite theological here. He does not change like shifting shadows. He is the rock of ages on which the believer can face the storms of life. He is Yahweh, 
I am who I am. I don't change, folks. I am the one in whom my people can put their full trust in life and in death. Daniel did that in the lion's den, didn't he? Fully trusted God. God had, Daniel had a big God, you see. And his three friends did the same in the fiery furnace. They too had a big God. And Jesus walked with them. Congregation, the circumstances of 2024 in your life are uncertain. Only God knows what he's got for you this year. Everything else seems shifting like shadows when a torch moves its beam of light round a room. You're well one day and diagnosed with cancer the next. Your loved one is with you in the morning, but gone in the evening. Things can change very quickly. We do know that, don't we? But, here's the divine but, but there is one God, one Father, one Savior, who remains constant in his purpose of goodness and love to James, to scattered Christians, and to willow Christians. Today, and through 2024, and through to the end, through to the willow hearers today. In him, you and I can put our trust fully for time and eternity. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Job did. He could confess, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? After all, he reveals himself to us as El Shaddai, God Almighty. Fatherhood is also part of God's being. He is the father of the heavenly lights. And now James uses it to further illustrate God's trustworthiness and his goodness. As a father begets children, so also it is God who gives us our spiritual birth. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, James says. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. James emphasizes that our coming to faith in Jesus as our Savior is because of his sovereign, gracious will. God has been with us long before we were born. In his divine, perfect, and good will, he has chosen us to be his and provided the way to have our sins removed. That's pretty good, isn't it? Pretty perfect. None of these scattered disciples deserved to be chosen, nor you or I, to be spiritually born into God's kingdom. Yet the almighty God of goodness did it to each one. And what God begins... He continues and brings to completion. None of his chosen will be lost. All will be brought home into his divine presence. All will receive 
good and perfect gifts from God. His goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, in all the happy, but also through the sad circumstances of life, all the trials of life. Note also that James mentions the means by which we're born into the church, by the word of truth, the word of truth. It is necessary for sinners to hear the gospel of salvation, the word of God. It is that word that convicts us of our sin and leads us to embrace Christ's atoning death as the only way of forgiveness. You've done that too, haven't you? Yes, it is the Gideon Bible in the hotel room or the person who's about to commit suicide and pulls out the Bible the Gideon's put there, reads it, is convicted of his sin and believes and is saved. What a miracle of God's goodness. It is the family Bible readings. Yes, your family Bible readings. The Sunday preaching of God's word that has no substitute. You can only increase your time spent reading, meditating, memorizing, studying it, and then doing it. But that's the next sermon. Now, what does this passage mean for you this morning? James gives us the answer in his final words. He moves to Old Testament language and concepts with which his Jewish Christians were very familiar. And you should be too. As a pastoral and agricultural society, Israel was commanded by Yahweh to present and offer to him the first fruits of the flock and the harvest at the end of the summer months. It taught the people to live by faith in Yahweh's provisions of rain for the very food they ate, their daily bread. It was also the opportunity to express their worship and thankfulness to the God who had redeemed them from Egypt and blessed them with the abundance in the promised land of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey. It was a public, visible declaration that all they had belonged to God, especially themselves. Now, James says that the Christians were also dedicated to the Father of lights in the same way, because they were his chosen, his redeemed people, holy to the Lord. What an honor, brothers and sisters, to be God's chosen people, to be redeemed by him through his Son, to belong to our heavenly Father of lights, who unceasingly lavishes his love and goodness on us. So let no one think that this God would tempt you or that he intends evil towards you. Well, oh Christians, you can be assured that you can trust God with all your heart. So don't lean on your own thoughts about God. In all your ways, Acknowledge him, 
and he will direct your path. Just don't be deceived. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter that James wrote so long ago, and it still edifies your people today, 2,000 years later. We stand amazed and admire the understanding that James had of the human heart, the human condition, the human anxieties that all his Christians, all the Christians that he taught had. And so, Father, we thank you that this word, too, strengthens us, gives us the knowledge of who you are, how great you are. You are the God of goodness, perfect goodness, perfect goodness in which we can trust. You don't give us evil things. You give us good things. So help us to perceive our lives as you perceive them and rejoice with pure joy at all the tests you give us, all the tests you give us this year too. To the glory of our Savior we pray. Amen.